0: Are you truly involved in the developer communities you work in and sell to? Are you seeing the value in the events that you are a part of? DevRelate.io can help. Developer and Community Relations is a service. We speak developer. Learn more at DevRelate.io or email us at info at DevRelate.io. everyone, this is episode 123 of Greater Than Code, and we're going to do something a little bit different today with doing a reading group. I've had this book on my shelf, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Peersig for years, and I haven't actually read it until fairly recently, and I'm actually kind of glad about that because this book seems more relevant right now really than ever. And today on the show what we're going to do is have a group discussion about the insights in this book like if we think about this perspective as a lens as a system of shapes and use our engineering modeling skills how can this book help us to understand what's going on in the world right now and What we can actually do as individuals, as communities, companies, as an industry of software engineer to build bridges that can help bring humans back together again at all scales, really. So I'm here with Brian Karlovitz and John Sawyers, and we're going to have a really fun discussion today about this book. On the back of the book, there's this inscription that says, The Extraordinary Story of a man's quest for truth. It will change the way you think and feel about your life. And this is one of those books that has definitely affected the way I think about things. So a little background about me and why I wanted to talk about this. I've been researching this data collection technique for the last decade of measuring the pain in friction in idea flow, as I call it. So you imagine this flow of ideas between the developer and the software and the friction that happens along the way. This friction in human communication. And so, whether I'm trying to explain an idea to a machine or I'm trying to explain an idea to another human, you can imagine there's friction in this communication pattern. And at this point, this paradigm of idea flow networks became the way I started to look at everything. So, if I think about all the humans out there in the world having these wires between them and sharing these ideas, these ideas flowing around these wires, culture becomes this emergent property of these idea flow network systems. So keep that thought in your head for a minute. And then, you know, these last couple of years have been this whirlwind of roller coaster and emotional chaos and everything going on in the world kind of affects all of our lives. I know my life has had lots of crazy roller coaster in it. And I'm kind of hitting that like, you know, I turned 40 this year, right? It's like midlife crisis mode, too. And so I'm taking a step back and asking a lot of like fundamental existential philosophical questions right now. Like, who am I? Why am I here? What's going on with this crazy world right now? And I look around me and I see this Culture war that is polarity and blindness, like these two sides that are stuck in this place of self defensiveness, of I am the victim. And because I am the victim, you know, I got to find some other allies that will give me a set of reasons to make sense of my emotions. And from studying brains, I kind of learned these three principles around human behavior. Is emotions come first, then we construct a reality to make sense of our emotions, and then we find allies to validate our realities. And so, if I take this paradigm of idea flow networks, and I think of ideas as flowing around as not only having this shape, but also being motivated by our emotions, being motivated by this desire to validate our realities then you can kind of look at what's going on in the world and this like emergent culture and this emergent tension as a reality construction. We live inside the story that we tell ourselves. And then if I look at the ideas from this book, Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and these two polarities, it gives a really good lens for seeing what's going on in the world right now and so piercing breaks down these two paradigms these two ways of seeing that are opposites and i'm going to call these the classical paradigm which is essentially breaking down the world into boxes and components and models of all the things and using rational decision making around how the world works based on the system of, of parts And then there's this romantic paradigm, which is very gut feel, emotional oriented. We want to just take this impressionistic feel of things and what matters, what is significant is that emotional impression. And that if you decompose the system into its parts this way, it loses its its core meaning. And these two opposite ways of seeing are blind to one another. If you look at the world through one of these lenses, the other one doesn't really make sense. And, you know, one aspect of the story is this journey on motorcycles, the story of motorcycle maintenance. Then the other story, the undercurrent kind of message of this whole thing, relates to this seeing of the world through this polarity of these two paradigms. And then also realizing, hey, there's a bridge that can be constructed between these two worlds that help us see one another. That there's a possibility for building a bridge that helps us see each other through this blindness. And I start thinking about how can these ideas apply in our relationships at work, in our relationships in our families how can we build these bridges such that when we dig our heels in with these opposite ways of seeing that we can find some way to come back together again to be able to see one another and right now i think that's probably one of the most important things in the world today is figuring out how to see one another again so what i was thinking where i wanted to start this is it's really easy to get lost in abstract conversation. So I think a good place to start here is if we dig into these two paradigms, like let's just clarify what these lenses and ways of seeing are. I think it'd be really helpful to kind of look at some examples from like the book of how Pearsig explains these.
1: So Zen, Zen and the Other Motorcycle Maintenance early on brings up this idea of a romantic approach to life versus a classical approach to life. And he introduces these as kind of polar opposites. So a classical understanding of the world uh, primarily sees the world as its underlying form is is the phrase that he uses. And a person who thinks from the, the classical point of view proceeds by reasons and laws, whereas romantic understanding is gonna see the world primarily in terms of, I think, quote, immediate appearance, So somebody with a romantic approach to life is thinking primarily from an inspirational or an imaginative or creative point of view. So if we take the example of showing a a mechanical drawing of a motorcycle engine, the person with uh, the romantic point of view doesn't find any appeal in this because what they see is the the motorcycle itself. So this drawing is, uh, I have the, quote, dull, complex list of names, lines, and numbers. Whereas a classical person is going to be very interested in this because they get excited by this rich underlying form of the motorcycle.
2: I think I can add a little bit to there. I, I felt like one of the things he also talked about was when you ask a person from each of these groups what that means, they'll have radically different answers for you. So the same, the same drawing is... To a classical person, they say, "Oh, what it means is this is how the thing functions, and the pistons go in here, and the push rods go here, and and this is the function of all these sub assemblies and and sort of broken down micro parts of of what the thing is doing." Whereas the romantic interpretation is going to be what it means as it means. I can drive out on the highway and I, I get the the feeling of the wind in my hair and, you know, freedom of the road. And, you know, it's just a completely different answer for the same question.
1: And this comes to life in the book with the author versus his friend, John Sutherland, who's traveling with them on this motorcycle trip. So there's a handful of scenes early on where the author notices some specific issue with his motorcycle. And he's thinking about what could be the cause? What exactly does it mean? And he's having fun and interested in going into the details of this. And John will have maybe the same issue with his motorcycle, and it's just an annoyance to him. And he wants to pay a mechanic to take care of it. He has no interest in the maintenance or even understanding the, the reasons for this mechanical issue.
0: Do you see these same paradigms and approaches in software, like a romantic and classical approach to software development?
1: I have definitely had that experience, yes. I've worked at Steps for my entire career, and it's common to have some people on the team whose mindset is, let's just get this out the door and working and not really care for the, the quality of the craftsmanship of the work. And then on the other side, you might have some developers who want to put craftsmanship first and, and will push a deadline back and back. And there needs to be a balance between those two things, but engineers on On those extremes, uh, it's definitely something that I've experienced in my own teams.
2: Yeah, and I think there's there's also a, a further distinction there from the people who are, you know, software equals code modules, deployments, systems, and people who are thinking software is a social construct in a social context, a communication between developers and users and businesses. And again, those two things don't really overlap a lot when you're trying to think of what the core issues and the core important priorities are.
0: It's interesting to me what I'm hearing here is like, there's a different form of what is beautiful that in some cases is like an internal thing. You might have an engineer excited about what is beautiful from all these components. You know, the decomposition of the system is beautiful versus it's sort of outward appearance of what it looks like on the outside is beautiful. And then I think about like a a product person or somebody who's thinking about the business and the impact. And you can also have these different paradigms and approaches with a different problem set. So here I'm a product person now, and I'm thinking about what is beautiful to me as a product person of like, oh, I'm able to impact all of these people and having this, you know, impressionistic kind of romantic paradigm from a product perspective. And I can also have a product perspective and think about the system of parts and the process and stuff of whatever abstractions and things is beautiful, too. So it's like you can have a different set of shapes you're looking at, a different set of things that you care about, and have these opposite paradigms in all of these different contexts.
2: Yeah, I think it's also interesting, much like what you were saying, Brian, earlier, that you can't really have a successful organization that involves software without taking both points of view into account because if, you, mm-hmm. if it's just beautiful to the user right now in this very moment but the software is so terrible that it can't be maintained or deployed reasonably or scaled beyond five users then it's going to fail and if it's super well designed and abstracted and clean and decompos- decomposable but None of the users like it and doesn't solve their problem. It's also a failure. And so you, you have to balance these two in order to have success.
0: I'm kind of thinking about, because I, I definitely tend toward the romantic side of things. At the same time, there's a romantic aspect to the internal beauty of a system too, of like, you know, I organize it this way and it just looks good. It makes me happy. It's pleasing to the eye. It's beautiful. That even though there's, A decomposition of the parts that is elegant, say, there's an attraction to that initial impression of elegance itself. So I feel like, on whether you're talking about internal or external, that both internal and external models of the world, you've still got these two opposite paradigms in both the internal context and the external context.
1: I think maybe the the criteria for elegant can also differ depending on what type of a person you are. So I've, Mm. to stick with the software example, I've worked with somebody who thinks their code is elegant if the variables and the functions all have extremely short names and they can type everything very quickly. But if you try to work on this system, it takes you six months to get used to it and to get up to speed. But another person might think elegant is I've written this in a way so that any team member I work with can understand this very quickly and start being productive.
0: Interesting. So it's elegant because it's named X, and I can type X so quickly. I can make lots of Xs.
1: And so it may be put together in a very clever and interesting way, but it's a whole job in itself to understand the internals. And if you're trying to produce software for users, that's, in my opinion, not very
0: elegant and and difficult to work with. So clever... Is a potential attribute that someone might see beauty in whether or not, you know, it has good functional properties for the team. We can go, oh, that's so clever. It's
1: beautiful clever or, or very efficient, but overly efficient.
0: Yeah, this is interesting. So I, I keep going back to, you know, the word beautiful. Because when you're, in, you're looking at kind of romantic impressions of what better means and what we end up optimizing for, it's ultimately like this emotional experience, this emotional gravity toward what feels like quality.
2: Yeah, I want to dive into the quality thing a little bit more. But, it, but before that, it reminds me of a, a quote, I think it was from Einstein, although it could have been just the internet making that up that he said that if you're looking at two different equations that solve the same problem, you should always choose the more beautiful of the two because it's more likely to be true or more useful. And I always thought that was an interesting, like, you don't hear that language about mathematics very often. But yeah, I think the idea of quality, and in in most of the book he uses it with a capital Q as a very sort of central concept that he tries to talk about as relating to all of these things and, and in fact unifying all of these things it's still a concept I find myself grappling with. I don't say I think I have my head fully around all of the implications of what it means to have this as part of thinking about a system. But it did remind me as we were just talking about like the the sort of varying interpretations of what, you know, elegant code is, is I think people trying to evaluate the quality of code in this abstract sense. And that they're each thinking of that code as sort of as, as some sort of scale of quality and that you, you can make things that go higher on that scale. But that the two, I'm, I'm trying to talk about how I'm visualizing this in my head because it's, it's almost like a spatial relationship where quality is a point in the distance and you have one path going towards that point that as you get closer to it, you have more and more quality. And for them, it's a readability or ease of understanding or whatever. And then there's another one where it's like execution speed. And so the higher the execution speed, the higher quality. And so that's a like 30 degrees to the left, but still pointing at the same point. And each person who evaluates on that scale is thinking that they can get things closer to that sort of ultimate sense of quality by going up that scale. And they're all heading to the same point but they're all taking different paths to get there. And so that's where a lot of the disconnect is, is because people use the one word elegance or quality to describe an attribute of a a chunk of code or of a system. But don't realize that there's these opposite, like these almost opposing systems for defining what that is.
1: Or they may disagree where the exact point is too, even if they're, they're using the same measurements, which, which is, I I agree with your sentiment that I'm still grappling with what exactly this means. I think that's one of the big reasons
0: yeah, it's interesting because I think about this spatially as well, but my model in my head is like the reverse of what you just described. Awesome. In that, <laughs> in that I think of an ideal form as a center of gravity. And that if I imagine like a 3D sphere around this center of gravity, that there's a, a distance metric that is far away from this center and that different people have a different notion in their head of what the center of gravity looks like and feels like and judges the sense of quality based on an almost like Plato's ideal form with a set of deviations around that. And they judge a distance relative to an ideal form. And yet Each person has their own sort of bounded context of what that means. And when they say quality, it's basically like a deviation from that center. But everyone has like these different centers of gravity about what is better, what is quality. And so we say these things, we say these words. In some sense, we have a shared meaning. In some sense, when I say quality, I have this meaning that is relative to an ideal And that concept translates to this notion of quality relative to this ideal. Yet those specific ideals of what is better, what is quality is like a different gravity. And sometimes those gravities are kind of the same ish, but maybe that's the thing we need to come back and talk about is what are these different centers of gravity How can we clarify, well, this is my gravity and this is your gravity and what are the differences between our gravities that we're judging things by and have a discussion about, well, what should our gravity be? What should those qualities be that we actually aim for? Can we come up with a shared definition of better to judge by that gets us on the same side? And I think you're right that we we take those things for granted, that when we say these things, we don't actually mean the same thing.
2: Yeah, I think it's so common to see this is good code, this is bad code, without ever defining the scale upon which that is being measured. And unfortunately, people with more seniority get to say those things, and then everyone else has to just sort of like, oh, okay, well, I guess so, (laughs) because it's so hard to argue about. What it is if you just make a flat-up pronouncement this this is good code this is not good code
1: so this is reminding me a bit of how the topic was introduced in the book so we we have the author and then another character in the book is actually the author but as a past self and his past self was uh, an English teacher at a small college and he started thinking about the question of what is good writing and he would do an experiment in his classes where he would show different pieces of writing to all the students and he would have them all vote on which piece was better or which piece had the most quality. And so this led him to start thinking about, well, what does good mean? And then this led, leads into the concept of quality for the rest of the book. But I, as I was reading this, I was thinking about, so if you showed bits of code to lots of developers and had them vote on what, what's the cleanest bit of code or, or the most well-written bit of code, what would the result be? Because in the book, with the writing example, he, the author claimed at least that there was a general consensus of, you know, eighty ninety percent maybe of the students uh, always agreeing on one piece of writing. So, would would that happen with engineers, or even within your own team, or or engineers who all work in the same language?
0: I think we should like actually do that experiment and see. I think it'd be really oh. interesting the results.
2: Yeah, it makes me wonder if like with writing, with rhetoric, as as, as he described mm-hmm. it in the book there's pretty much a singular scale of quality. Like, does it communicate the idea? Does it convince? Does it persuade? Is it poetic, lyrical? Like, it seems like those are very closely related and you can say yes or no up and down on the scale. Whereas with code, I think because there are these multiple axes is one of the reasons we get so much disagreement. And I wonder if there's a way to unify these axes or not. And if maybe that's one of the, the troubles that we're getting into.
1: Yeah, and I think that brings up the point of there are some decisions, like you say, with writing where it's there's just less directions you can go to judge the, the quality of something. And we, we can sit here and think of increasingly complex examples of, well, this has 10 directions where you can judge and something else might have 20 directions where you can judge the qualities. There's code, but then there's politics and then there's what you should do about the United States right now that just get more and more complex.
0: Software is kind of interesting because you've got one set of aspects that are, I need to communicate an idea to a machine. There's a sense of concreteness to that particular problem that it either communicates the idea to the machine successfully and the code, compiles and runs and does what it's intended to do, or it doesn't. You know, you've got a certain aspect of it works or it doesn't because you're talking to a machine. There's also this aspect that I think is very similar to writing where this text that we produce with the variable names and structure and design and these sort of spatial container relationships we create, that's not for the machine. We're communicating and shaping these ideas for each other. It's not fundamentally all that different from writing, except it's more you know, structural. So we're like saying, here's a container and it's got these thingies in it and it relates to these other things in these different ways. And we're modeling space and we're modeling relationships between concepts and using that as a medium for ideas to kind of communicate as a team so that we can work together on translating this set of ideas to something a computer can understand but like language itself the text itself is for humans
2: yeah and i think that might be down to another like classic versus romantic split within software and actually you know he uh, there's a quote i say from the book that highlights this difference and i just i tagged it because it, it seemed to apply so well in in describing the his his friend john as you described mentioned earlier brian he says John looks at a motorcycle and he sees steel in various shapes and has negative feelings about these steel shapes and turns off the whole thing. I look at the shapes of the steel now and I see ideas. He thinks I'm working on parts, but I am working on concepts. And I thought that, well, that's a, you know, you see code and you look at code on one level that it's just, you know, sitting there. And then there's, what does the code mean? What concepts does it relate to? How does it affect the real world? How does it communicate what it does to other people that are reading it?
1: Yeah, this is an example of the ideal forms well one way to think about coding is you've you've got certain concepts in the application you're building and, and they relate in certain ways and you you think of that as just the specific ideas in your domain and then we're trying to realize this in the codes we're trying to build it in a certain way so we're trying to make the code match the domain that we're modeling because we, we use words like modeling
0: yeah mental model I think is a good word here
1: yeah making the code match the team's shared mental model is, is a very difficult thing to do. And I think the shared is the operative word there.
2: Yeah. well, Like you were saying, Janelle, earlier, you know, you can't write a unit test to make sure an idea has been transmitted to another human <laughs> properly. Yes.
0: <laughs> it's interesting though. Like, you know, I think about, so the things I'm measuring with respect to friction in ideas, I've got three types of things that I measure. And one of them is what I call familiarity risk or familiarity friction. And essentially, when you're, if I think about the software itself as this sculpture of ideas, it's a hodgepodge of things that is sort of constructed by a bunch of different humans. And I'm trying to absorb this thing in my brain. I have to read the code, get the ideas in my mind, build a mental model of what's going on. And it's like you have to download a certain amount of all this stuff to be able to build that mental model and abstraction in your head such that you can think about how I'm going to add a new idea to the system. And so there's an amount of friction in just that absorption and becoming familiar enough that you get unstuck. And so I I measure explicitly how long do we spend staring and looking at stuff before we can make motion, before we can move, before we can start adapting things. And how does the area of code that we're looking at, the amount of confusion, the difficulty of absorbing the ideas, maybe the dissonance with the other patterns and stuff other way in the, in the system, we do all the things one way. And then I come to this other part of the code and all the things are done a different way. I've got more friction with trying to get those ideas into my head. It takes me longer to build a mental model that I can work with, right? And then the other thing I look at is that almost unit testing sort of aspect of of experimentation characteristics. So another way that I train and understand these things and build this mental model is to probe things, run experiments and see what happens. One of the fastest ways that you can understand how a system works, but you can understand that spatial model of ideas is to execute something and watch what happens. And so then you start looking at this sculpture of ideas as having a interactive surface, if you will, where I can poke things, I can manipulate things, I've got various knobs I can turn on the system, and I've got mechanisms where I've got windows into the system where I can observe what's going on. I can get output from the system and then I can translate the mix of these inputs and outputs in addition to my reading of the actual code to build this sort of spatial mental model of how the system works, this set of ideas. And what I found as I was doing this as a explicit definition Of better, that once I started observing these patterns and making the friction and pain visible, that you could start to see across the team how all the differences in paradigms and ideas affected different people. So, for example, if I'm a human and I think very differently from the rest of the folks on my team, I'd see these really interesting patterns where one person writes a bunch of code one way and then another person looks at that as like, This makes no sense. And then they'll rewrite all the code and write it a different way. And you see these patterns where people are like rewriting each other's code on the team back and forth in different kinds of ways. And it's like, this is kind of crazy. But at the same time, you've got that dissonance of what beautiful is from these two different paradigms. And as opposed to having a conversation about my beautiful looks like this and your beautiful looks like this, how do we like converge on these shared differences of quality such that we come up with some sort of shared direction we're moving toward. We end up rewriting each other's code. <laughs> and you see these kind of dynamics happen a lot. And once we started making these kind of things visible on the team and having discussions about, Hey, because I think about these things differently, it has this objective impact on the rest of the team of how much friction it causes in their experience with being able to absorb these ideas and be able to make forward progress on the work. So how as a group of humans, can we optimize the idea flow on this network such that we're all pulling the same direction toward more idea flow across the team, that that became a shared definition of quality
1: I think one way to interpret the the example you just gave is that as the team members are talking to each other and seeing each other's code, it's like everybody's ideal form is evolving and becoming more similar.
2: Yeah, I've, I've often found that once I understand the scale on which someone else is evaluating code, like, oh, I've just written this code. I think it's really elegant and smooth and I read it and I'm like, I don't really understand what you're doing here. But then if we can come to that shared understanding, oh, you've written it's way because you value these things and, and this, and it's good on this scale. Once I understand that scale, I can, and as long as I can accept that that scale makes sense to me then I can incorporate that into my understanding. Oh, this code, well, it's not maybe how I would have written it if I just sat down to do it. But it does improve things, uh, you know, on its own, on its own scale. Uh, You know, I can accept that as an improvement without having to, you know, force the thing into my own paradigm. And I think the more of those that I can collect, the better. And I think, like Janelle, what you were pointing out is making it more obvious when these sorts of paradigms are conflicting so that you can make them obvious and discussed and explicit rather than just sort of implicit stylistic choices that i just prefer it this way which is really hard to argue against and or integrate
1: yeah i think in a in a healthy team what you usually see is a shared style evolving or shared code style evolving a shared approach evolving and that comes out of hopefully people with different approaches learning each other's approaches and then kind of find finding a middle ground use the, the language of the book
0: And eventually coming up with a shared direction for better, a shared direction for quality through those discussions.
1: And it's, I think it's also true often that two approaches are, it's hard to argue that one has more quality than the other. In most cases, it's just a different way to tackle a problem. And where the agreement comes from is with both sides becoming comfortable with the idea that the other side is going for.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's a very good point. So
1: what happens is the cognitive dissonance that Janelle mentioned goes away. And so then it's not as uh, difficult to start making your code move towards that ideal form.
0: I want to kind of throw a wrench into this because, and I, I think we can still use software as an example, but I want to talk about how emotional motivations come into play in software. And that the other thing that I see going on is that the software... Our crafts become an extension of ourselves and we map a lot of our sense of identity to our code, to our creations, that it becomes a reflection of ourself. And all of these things that are difficulty in communication become very emotional. And I'm wondering, you know, we, we talked at the beginning about blindness and how kind of our emotions coming into play create blindnesses. And, you know, what are some of the experiences you've seen of how the emotional experience ends up making it so that the engineers are unable to, like, converge on a shared meaning of better because the emotions get in the way?
2: I mean, I certainly have a, I have a direct example of that in my life. Uh, I think I mentioned this on an earlier show uh, last year where I had rewritten a piece of our code to account for some new requirement and pushed it out and said, okay, here we go. This is way better. And then uh, I think like two or three months later, another developer had other work to do that impacted this code. And so, and then rewrote that to take into account what he needed to do. And I, I read the pull request and I got really pissed off because I was like, oh, I just, this has only been a production like two months. Like come on, like, just destroy all the work I did. Right. And fortunately I was able to not, express that to the other developer because i knew it was just my own reaction to what was going on and further thinking about it i realized that like when i had originally built that code i hadn't actually consulted the rest of the team on what all the needs were and so i had left out what his project needed and so he had to rewrite what i had written in order to account for all the other things that needed to happen so you know i like emotionally if i hadn't been aware of that, like it probably wouldn't turn into a big thing because i am been like, "What the hell are you doing? You're trampling over my stuff." When, whereas, like the actual mistake was my own in not getting enough input before just charging ahead and building my own solution.
1: I feel like code may be relatively unique in that it's something you build and put together with a lot of effort, but can be changed so easily, so that that's not as true for physical things that you build, or like a motorcycle, for example. If you do have a certain fix on an engine, somebody's not going to come and totally change how that fix happened.
2: Yeah, or even creative things like writing or painting, like you rarely have. I mean, writing a little bit, you may have an editor, like rewrite a paragraph, but it doesn't keep happening over and over again over not, years. Not to yeah. the extent. And yeah. certainly people don't come in and paint new additions onto your canvas. But I think a lot of us relate to our code in a similar way that you would to a painting. Like, this is mine. Like, I really poured myself into this. Yeah,
1: it's something you put a lot of thought and effort into and produced and put out into the world. Yeah.
0: That's really interesting. Like, as an art We've got this really fascinating challenge of collaborative art where we're doing what is, you know, a a painting or an art project that normally is hard to have multiple people working on because we have all these opinions about quality and better and we want to express our soul in this thing, right? But we're having to figure out and mature as an industry to kind of put all that aside, grow beyond that such that we can do this collaborative sculpture art project together and build a sculpture of ideas that is I mean like we've got I was going to say that that these projects you know the reason why we have to collaborate is they get huge right we've got coordination between you know hundreds thousands of developers sometimes right and it's really quite incredible that we've been able to to do that given that there's this undercurrent of emotional artistic creation of beautiful, romantic, passionate side of software development that is very real. And we've had to mature a lot, I think, as an industry to be able to kind of set all that aside and go, well, we've got a job to do, right? It's kind of cool.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because I think I, I haven't really worked on any big like collaborative art projects. Uh, but I would imagine that there there has to be some sense of, you know, giving up ownership and that deep identification with the art you've created in order to collaborate effectively with someone. You can't just all be fighting to do your own painting. And like that's one aspect of working on software. But then you have the additional things where there are objective like measures of quality, such as does it work? Does it perform you know, they're, like there there are all those also mixed in. Which, I mean, I think it is is a new situation for humanity. There certainly doesn't seem to be a lot of literature on over the last 1500 years on how do you combine people working together up to the thousands of people and have them communicate art and and not bring in ego and also meet, you know, meet objective goals and have discussions like I think that like this is such, such a young industry.
1: Yeah, so how should the individual contributors think about it then so, so that the, the group is moving in the right direction and their own emotions and feelings about their work are healthy? It's a hard problem.
0: Well, I guess the thing I'm, I'm seeing in this discussion is that it is young. At the same time, what that means is the insights that we've developed in the context of software development, in the context of having to bridge this gap of art you know, in this romantic paradigm and this classical view and this component and, you know, functional, we need to get the thing out of the door. In our industry, we've had to face this challenge in order to do our jobs. And you see the emergence of certain kind of behavior patterns, certain kinds of collaborative practices of setting it all aside like these skills we've developed to be able to have these conversations about these things you know are are kind of cool are cutting edge in a lot of ways because of the uniqueness of software as a form and really being you know the the bridge of these two things kind of coming together
2: yeah it's it's interesting i think at the beginning you were talking a little bit at an even higher level sort of beyond the software industry into the the world and politics and things like that and What's occurring to me is often the word used to describe the differences between, say, political parties are that they're differences of value systems, that you just value different things. But I think that leaves open a door, a trap door, which is that you can believe that one value system is better and one is not better. But if you instead think of it as... These are systems where they're working on a scale that's trying to approach the same sense of quality from different angles, that it's much harder to say one is better than the other because they're both attempting to do the same thing. They're both attempting to reach that point of quality. That doesn't fit with your spatial metaphor, Janelle. Just, it fits with mine, though.
1: <laughs> the thing that keeps bouncing around in my head now is the the point about how in software we have objective measures of quality, like is it responding in fast enough are you hitting these certain slas that the business needs to stay in business but then there's also these much more subjective uh, measures of quality like readability and the other things we've mentioned and i guess i'm trying to think of examples of sort of unique situations of balancing both of those or some interesting consequences of having both of these in, in the systems that we're working on
0: Well, I think one of the things we've done is to take these more subjective romantic ideals around readability and go, okay, what effect does this really have on the business? What effect does it really have on the team? And to try and bridge these things together to kind of step back and go, what is it we're even aiming for? What does better really mean? In a software context, when we can kind of zoom out and have that abstract conversation that we can end up converging on a definition of better. And I feel like if we did the same kind of thing, like as opposed to going, we've got two conflicting value systems and then we're arguing about all the stuff, all of the means of optimizing for these two different value systems. If we just stopped that whole discussion and took a step back and went, what does better really mean? You know, if we wanted to make the world a better place, forget about all the means of getting there. Forget about all the strategy for a minute. What is a better life? What is well-being? What, do, what is it we even want in life? Like if we erased all of this stuff and could dream up any reality we wanted to, we could live in any reality we wanted to. It's just software that we can just throw away and rebuild it. Like, let's just pretend for a minute that, that we can do that what is it we even want? What is quality? What does quality look like? And maybe if we could agree on those things, if we could agree on what better means, such that when we try out different ideas, try out different strategies, we could judge as to have a shared agreement on, is this experiment working out better? Like maybe if we could come up with a way to agree on those ideals, to take a step back from that conversation and talk about better, talk about quality, that that becomes a bridge to set all our differences aside of these two different sides and come up with a shared arrow, really. It's an arrow.
1: Yeah, this this keeps reminding me of some of the measurements that have come out of the DevOps world where you want to be measuring only team statistics versus individual statistics. And then I also wonder if teams that have these sort of uh, well, measures of quality, but measures of performance is, is a more common word in software maybe, have these set up and explicitly, they're, they're, they're made explicit to the team and everyone agrees we are working on these measures right now versus teams that do not have anything set. Then you get like, okay, we, we have the whole team working towards these three or four performance measures, and then little differences of opinion in exactly how to write this kind of aren't center stage anymore versus teams that don't have those three or four measurements they're working towards, the individual differences and differences of opinion or differences of subjective measures of quality, it becomes a much bigger, more difficult, more emotional thing because there is not this North Star to be working towards.
0: That's a really so, great point,
1: so this idea of we are agreeing on these three or four things is almost a distraction to the issues that don't matter as much.
2: Yeah, you cut out some of the bike sheds
1: exactly, so i would uh, i don't I don't know of any research on this or any um any data, but i wonder wondering about the differences between teams like that.
0: yeah, I'm thinking about a team where I worked on where we actually like wrote a team charter manifesto type thing that was like this is the scope of what our project entails. This is what we care about. This is what we're working toward, what better means to us that we're going to focus on. And then once we agreed on the scope and the arrow, a lot of discussions and arguments and stuff and all the emotional stuff went away because it was made explicit. It wasn't this undercurrent of disagreement of you know, conversation underneath all of the things that were actually happening. It was this constant tension. We put all the things on the table. We had an explicit discussion about it. And we agreed on the scope and the arrow for our team. And then everything we talked about at that point, we have reference point to go back to. We're having a disagreement about what to optimize for of all these different dimensions and choices of things. Well, what's the thing we want to focus on for a team, for our team, you know? And we agreed on, like, this is the direction we were going to go. And it just level set all discussions because we made those things explicit. And I'm wondering if we could apply those same ideas in other contexts.
1: So I wonder if group size has a big effect on this because uh, software teams, it's often a small enough group to be able to choose a handful of things you're working on. But if we're talking the level of a country, it's just almost certainly not going to happen because it's too big.
0: You know, I think about things in software that have impacted a bigger group. So it's like, you know, you get off into the realm of politics and there's so much baggage with the existing system infrastructure. And so it's like, I want to stay in thinking about like just cultural influence of things. Because, you know, at the end of the day, it's, there's just this level of emotion and trying to control things and, you know, just all these dynamics that are part of the existing status quo. And if you come back to software where we've got this context that there's a lot of collaboration, like we've had these open source movements and these agile movements, right? And what happened to kick these things off is essentially a group of people that got together and wrote a manifesto and said, here's a thing that we believe in, a direction of an arrow and a scope that we care about. And we believe this is the way that we ought to go. You know, we had the agile manifesto. These are the things that are important that we're going to work on and collaborate on as an industry. And it didn't take someone giving those people permission to go, we believe this is the arrow of better and this is the way that we're going to go and work toward. And, you know, to some extent, I feel like that's all we really need is like, write a manifesto. You know, it's like, this is a direction of better that we're going to work toward in our everyday lives, in our teams, in our families, in our interactions with other people, we're going to put people before process. What does that mean? What does that mean in all these different contexts? And you saw this movement, this change happen across our whole industry that has been huge, that has affected millions of people that started with a few people writing a manifesto and going this is an arrow that we think is important and we're going to stand behind this definition of quality. Do we want to go into reflections or how do we how do we want to wrap up this show? We've kind of just been
2: I mean the whole show is kind of a reflection so
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm I mean, I mean I was trying to kind of tie together Some of these things of, you know, just how these ideas apply between different themes. And I feel like the thing that I wanted to come back to is the main point of the show is the quality that taking a step back and looking at the shared definition of quality gives us a way to bridge these things. It's It's a mechanism of creating bridges and whether we're talking about bridges in a very localized context or bridges in a higher context that that practice of taking a step back and going what is quality can potentially solve a lot of problems just that simple first principle
2: yeah i think you're right with that
1: i think one of the things stressed in the book was uh after the initial description of the romantic view versus the classical view there's a couple of paragraphs about each side sees each other wrongly and how much of a problem that is. And I think a lot of the book is a comparison between the, the author's current self and the author's past self and, and how different they are. And they eventually, towards the end of the book, seem to find a middle ground, or at least the current the the author's present self reconciles all the differences between himself today and himself previously. I'm trying to tie it back to back to that because the We've been talking about groups of people, whereas a lot of the discussion in the book was one person or, or one person now and before.
2: There's actually a quote in the book that, that I highlighted because it, it actually brings up this, this very thing that we've been talking about. He says, actually, the, the root word for technology, techni, originally meant art. The ancient Greeks never separated art from manufacture in their minds and so never developed separate words for them. And I feel like that's what we're talking about here with software, where there's, there is art and there is manufacture and, and then the sort of classic and romantic have to be fused into this one thing that we're talking about. And I think what Janelle, you're also talking about, about the bridge is taking the different value systems, the different arrows and fusing them together in some degree, or at least getting people to agree on one common one or one that's, that's a little bit higher level that can then help. Unify the group into a single direction, single set of values. I think that's an incredibly powerful thing, and I think the difficulty comes, like as you said, Brian, with scaling it up. Like, <laughs> how big a group can you get to do this thing?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think the biggest takeaway for me, though, is uh, w- when you recognize you have sort of two different categories of measures of quality, the team starts to need guardrails to push the group towards just a couple of agreed upon things and. Recognize that all of the subjective differences are never going to go away, but build up a system where those discussions can happen and it's easy to keep moving on towards the next step.
0: That's really interesting. The subjective discussions never really go away. And as opposed to thinking that they ever will go away, that we can somehow argue our way to completion I think we need to start with the premise that the discussion is continuous. The understanding is emergent, that clarity is always increasing. And there's this process, this flow of working out mistakes and misunderstandings, but it's always moving It's never certain, it's never still, it's never done. And in the context of software development, we had to figure out how to bridge and fuse all these different arrows with this classical paradigm of focusing on function and composition and this romantic paradigm of art and technique and this invention of technology and all of the things involved in human communication bridges and subjective feel for what is better. And in this collaborative artistic context, we've come up with ways to build bridges. We've come up with ways to organize larger and larger groups of people that start with something small, that start with taking a step back and asking the question, what does better really mean? What is quality? What are our different definitions of quality? And as opposed to feeling like we can answer that question, maybe the point is just to ask the question, to keep asking the question, to let the answer be a continually evolving thing and that we can clarify these bridges by letting the bridge itself be continuous in a way by letting the bridge be defined in terms of a question to always be asking what is it we're aiming for and when we think about our emotions being in this mixed what what is it i'm attached to that potentially is making me blind to what's going on, you know, out there.
2: Yeah, something that occurred to me just a little bit earlier in what you were saying is is that much like DevOps is a process and not a state, this process of continually integrating viewpoints and aligning value systems is a process and not a state. It's not like you did it once and then you're done and <laughs> you don't have to worry about yeah. it anymore. Yeah. A shared understanding is very hard.
1: We have to go into it with the, with that explicitly said.
0: It's very hard, and it's also unending. It's continuous integration. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Continuously integrated value systems.
0: Yeah. Continuous integration of value systems. Continuous integration of quality. And maybe this is the next, you know, era of our industry and next meaning of continuous integration is having explicit conversations about what is quality and continuously letting those definitions evolve, but making them explicit. You know, you start thinking about this and this is essentially science, right? What is science? It is this continuously improving, continuously integrated definition of this arrow of things getting clearer and clearer, but towards a certain purpose toward a certain meaning of value of what it is we're optimizing for. It's like, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. And I think maybe that's the point of these two paradigms is the components, the breakdown of all the things, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's like, if, if we're not anchoring to something that's real that has meaning outside of all the boxes it just becomes vapor. Like if the thing I ultimately care about is I want to be a happy engineer on my team, that that is ultimately the experience that affects me every day is I want to I have fun. I want to love my job, right? I like and this idea
1: a lot. I think so, the next time my team has a retrospective, I'm going to call it a value system CI meeting.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I like that
1: seeing all the forces at play on the, the software teams that I work with as being in two categories. One which that fits the the classic and one that fits the romantic. And we have lots of processes and Sort of direction around how to handle these classic constraints but not so much the romantic constraints and there is a lot of work around running retrospectives and doing one-on-ones and stuff like that but i, I feel like i'm thinking about it from a, a different perspective now and i think that the ci example is a really good uh, or a really eloquent way to state that
2: yeah and for me i think like a metaphor came to my head uh, sort of halfway through and i wasn't quite sure when to to mention it but like i was thinking of like, you know, in, in, in visual, like computer vision processing, you have these things called edge detectors that'll find, you know, where, where the border of something is. And I, and I, I want to try and think of like building up my own skills as an edge detector for detecting these value system edges where there's two different discussions of quality, but they're they're talking on a different scale and, and being able to make those visible so they can be reconciled, I think would be valuable.
0: I so love that That as brilliant idea, edge detection of value systems. And if I think about my little gravity ball metaphor, you know, like what are these different gravity balls? You could think about what are the different edges of these different gravity balls that are out there of what is quality and how do we merge these things together and have kind of a continuously integrated definition of better that we're always evolving together. I think my biggest takeaway here is the power of making these things explicit as a way to shift the conversation. And that if we take a step back and ask these questions about what is better, what is quality? You know, what are the different paradigms that we're looking through and how can we bridge those together such that we can see each other through these different paradigms such that we can put all our emotions and identity stuff, you know, aside and be able to come together and work together as a team, maybe the answer for getting there is as simple as writing it down as a starting point. Let's try and write it down. Start a conversation on your team. Maybe that's where we start. All right. So this was a really great discussion. Brian, John, really great talking with you. I hope everyone listening had a really interesting time listening to the show as well. And check out the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Pirsig, and have lots of really great discussions with your friends. Thank you for listening.